Hi folks, you find me on tour once again. I've left the cabin. I'm on a mission connected to Percy Fawcett, the explorer. This is going to be my second Percy Fawcett episode. Go back and listen to the first one if you haven't, or you might be a little bit lost as the man himself became later on in his career. Anyway, terrible jokes aside, I'm at number one Savile Row in London's extremely well-to-do West End and I'm on the street outside the building which was formerly owned by the Royal Geographical Society. Now, they changed their building in 1912. They're now currently at a place called Lowther Lodge, which is over at South Kensington. I'll be paying a visit there later today, but I'm starting off here because this uh, building, which is, is today, um, it's called G's and Hawks. It's like an upmarket, extremely upmarket tailor. In fact, this whole street is full of tailors. Um, this is where Percy Fawcett would have gone in his days training with the RGS and this is where he would have gone in 1906 when Fawcett met with Sir George Goldie, president of the Royal Geographical Society and was given his first mission connected to South America. According to uh, legend and according to Fawcett's writings, Goldie said something along the lines of, uh, tell me what you know about Bolivia and took out a huge map and showed Fawcett all the blank spots that were there and therefore all of the work that needed to be done and potentially hinting at some of the adventure that there might be there as well. And Fawcett, of course, was still living on Spike Island in Cork at this time, uh, but was eager to get out and go have adventures in other more exotic places. And so he was sent off to work for a boundary commission to draw up boundaries and help prevent war between various countries in that part of the world. And, and such was the beginning, really, of his, his kind of most famous work uh, exploring jungles and kind of remote places in South America. So I will be in this episode mostly focusing on his own writing, uh, which is the book Exploration Fawcett uh, by Colonel Percy Fawcett, arranged from his manuscripts, letters, logbooks and records by his son Brian Fawcett, with amazing line drawings by Brian Fawcett as well. So this is mostly Fawcett's own work with some editorials from his son and as we'll see much later possibly even in the next episode with Brian Fawcett maybe leaving out certain aspects to put a particular tint on things because uh, the kind of my theme for this series is that each version of Fawcett uh, focuses on something different and people have found different things and different meanings in his story and this book first came out in 1953 so it's quite a while after Fawcett disappeared into the Amazon in 1925 and it's after Brian Fawcett his son had actually spent a bit of time in the Amazon as well trying to figure out you know maybe what happened to him and whether there were any truth in his ideas about the lost city of Zed. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Hi folks, you're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. Uh, I'm Kean, and I am back here in the cabin of the woods. Uh, ensconced uh, in uh, 
uh, and surrounded by, shall we say, uh, weighty old tomes of uh, explore, exploration and exciting adventures from around the world, those kind of stories. Uh, hanging on my walls are moldy old maps from the 1700s, uh, potentially leading to mysterious cities and other lost places. Uh, all going well, you heard in the intro a little bit from my recent trip to London, uh, where I checked out some places and, and artifacts and things like that associated with... Uh, the Explorer Percy Fawcett. This is, of course, episode two of my series on the man himself, and this one is going to be focusing mostly on his own book from 1953, posthumously published, called Exploration Fawcett. And I suppose you could think of it really as a, a sort of a, a posthumous collaboration with his own son, because as, as we'll see, his son put his own spin on things. Now, as always, you can say hello, reach out to us over at Twitter. I am at Strange Ireland. On Instagram, I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And you can help the show over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. And that's always appreciated. And my beer for this episode is one I've had before, but I think not for a long time. And I think it's appropriate. It's called Expedition Ale. It's a red ale from Tom Crean Brewing. Tom Crean, of course, being a famous... Irish um, polar explorer, and they are based out of Kenmare down in County Kerry. And this, let's see what they write about this one. It is now modified. It's one of their old flagship ales, modified, uh, pushing a balanced malty sweetness with chocolate malts giving rich color to complement our combination of American and European hops. Now, I'm sure the man himself would have appreciated one of these on his Antarctic expeditions back in the day. Ironically enough, I suppose, given uh, Percy Fawcett's own sort of <laughs> sort of jealousy about the the attention and money that were thrown at Antarctic expeditions in his own day, by comparison with his his uh, South American wanderings, uh, which is a thing we talked about a lot on the first Percy Fawcett episode. And if you haven't checked that one out, please go back and do. That's mostly about David Grant's book, Lost City of Zed. And um, I will be. I'm not going to repeat too much from that book if I can, so I'm taking the same story again, but now this time it's written from Fawcett's own perspective, and what I'm interested in is what does he emphasise, what does he not emphasise, and I guess also what does Brian Fawcett, how does Brian Fawcett want us to to think about Fawcett's own life and career. Do I have a few bits and pieces to say first? I do, because I've been away on holiday and lots of interesting stuff connected to cryptozoology came up and um, some friends of the show and other people who are, whose work I like were sharing some interesting stuff. I could say loads of things, but I won't because this episode is never going to get done and they're all going to be really dated by the time I get there. However, editing key in here. Yep, this episode is going to be late, like really late. It's taking me a very long time to put together and some pretty big changes are happening Behind the scenes, in real life, they're all good changes, but ones that mean that podcasting is taking something of a backseat for now. Uh, however, I will get this episode out at one point. All I want to say is uh, that by the time you hear this, I think almost certainly uh, an episode that I featured on of the Workers' Cauldron podcast should be out. That is their episode about the moving statues of Balan Spittle, something we covered on this show a long time ago. Uh, and also on that episode is my good friend Victoria Pearson, and I'm a huge fan of The Workers' Cauldron, and it is uh, uh, tremendous to be asked to speak on it. So by all means, please do go and check that one out. Anyway, back to back to Percy Fawcett. I do want to say that I enjoy an account on Twitter called Pop Paleo. That's at paleo underscore pop. Um, as you can probably guess, they share 
images of dinosaurs taken from pop culture and it's kind of interested in how dinosaurs are portrayed in culture which i suppose fits in with some of our recent episodes like our lost world episodes and recently they shared an interesting one um, and it's it's pictures from a book called monster mysteries from 1988 and you can get this book on internet archive it's it's if you want to and it's by uh, some somebody who should be familiar to to listeners of this show because it's written by uh, let me see now Rupert Matthews who uh, who has written uh, some some of my childhood cryptozoology books that meant a lot to me it's illustrated by a guy called Bernard Long and the the reason I got excited about this is because the illustrations are tremendous they, it is worth tracking down this book Monster Mysteries by Rupert Matthews on Internet Archive. If you're interested in, you know, representations, pictorial representations of crypto creatures um, throughout history. So there are three interesting pictures that they put up from a chapter on Mokile Membe, the supposed Congo dinosaur. And I had fun trying to figure out, you know, what what was the author reading in, in the 1980s and which stories were they trying to allude to and where might they have got them from. So there's one picture, it's a two-page spread, and it's marvellous, of the Mukile and Bembe. And this is the version of it where it looks like a sauropod with a single horn and maybe some kind of spines on the back of the neck and being attacked by a bunch of people in boats with spears and it's being attacked and it's a very dramatic picture. And they mentioned that this happens at Lake Banguelu in modern-day Zambia. And there's a story about how this there was a fierce battle between these people and this animal. Now, this could be taken from several stories, as there are various um, stories of um, Amukile and Bembe being killed by groups of local people. I think that, with a careful reading, I think this account is from Ivan T. Sanderson's original 1949 article, There Could Be Dinosaurs, which... Some of a lot of a lot of things that he wrote about were then repeated by Bernard Huvelmans in the fifties in in on the track of unknown animals. This is real foundational cryptozoology stuff. Um, in fact, I think all of the pictures of, of Mokile and Bembe in this book are probably taken from that original Sanderson article. Um, because the second one is a picture of a, a hunter in a pith helmet um, coming across a, a sauropod dinosaur and it's drawn the same way with the horn on the nose even though in, actually these original accounts differ um, they differ quite a bit in the description of the creature and it's kind of only later that they're massaged into you know uh, the, the form of one creature and it actually mentions which one this is this is um, the supposed Lepage sighting so he's a hunter who sees uh, or reports an animal in either 1919 or 1920. Um, and this is widely regarded to be a hoax. You can usually find this written up online uh, being called the Great Brontosaurus Hoax. One of the strange things about it is the original report, if you go back and check, was of a clearly of a kind of a Ceratopsian type animal, like a three-horned uh, Triceratops type beast. But for some reason, the newspapers went with the name Brontosaurus because it was popular and Ever after then, the story has been linked in with the Mukele and Bembe story, and the creature has been depicted, as it is here, as a as a sauropod, even though originally that wasn't it. But it, yeah, widely regarded to be a hoax, um, and not really even taken seriously by most cryptozoologists, even in the 80s, so it's funny to see it here. This hoax was something that came about in 1919. Uh, oddly enough, Rupert Matthews refers to it as 1920, and perusing my copy of his spine-chilling book of monsters, I see he also has the year 1920 on that as well. So he clearly picked up that mistake somewhere and used it in more than one place. And then lastly, and most thrillingly, there is an amazing picture of 
uh, a bunch of European explorers in boats with pith helmets going down um, a river with uh, like it, like in a canyon with like rock walls around them, and this gigantic head of a monster in the foreground is coming up out of the water and menacing them, and it's it's enormous. And I recognise this one straight away. This is from the 1932 Ivan T. Sanderson Cameroon expedition with Ivan T. Sanderson and Gerald Russell, who is an interesting guy and has done a lot, has been involved in a lot of other cryptozoological expeditions as well. Um, and I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm, I'm quite taken with this particular supposed expedition. There are numerous bizarre stories associated with it. So that was fun to see. Anyway, I tracked down the book and had a quick flick through it. And lo and behold, there is a page about giant snakes and there is an, an enormous two-page spread of Percy Fawcett's infamous... Uh, supposed giant anaconda sighting and it's very dramatic it's really really cool absolutely worth tracking down if you're into Fawcett um, and you're into representations of this uh, oft-told story which we will get to later because it, it is in um, his book Exploration Fawcett this picture by Long is clearly riffing on a picture from the book itself the original 50s book and it's a, one of those line, line drawings wonderful line drawing by Brian Fawcett um, he's clearly modelled it on that long has because the boat looks the same. The snake is posed in exactly the same way. Oddly enough, the snake is kind of pointing in the same direction, but the boat is drawn going in the opposite direction. Uh, so he's switched up the composition slightly, but it's clearly, clearly based on, on the same picture. So, But it, it's dramatic and it's fun and it there's a kind of a, a Loch Ness monster quality to it. Speaking of which, also in this book, Monster Mysteries, is a superb one-page drawing of the 1934 Arthur Grant Loch Ness Monster Sighting, which is um, not one you hear too much about always. I, I've plenty of books that go through the kind of preliminary Loch Ness Monster Sightings, and this one often isn't there, but it's it's a land sighting, and uh, you know, it, which wasn't crazy common. And the drawing makes it absolutely look like it was a plesiosaur, no questions asked, which Early, by, by that point, 1934, people were kind of latching onto that idea. So it, it shows up in the in the lore quite early. Right, what else do I want to talk about? I want to talk about Hesketh, Hesketh Pritchard. So this is just, this is not news. This is just something fun I was reading about that I came across and a connection that existed and was not hidden. I did not discover this, but I, I didn't realize it and I had fun when I did realize it. So um, I'm a fan of... Victorian ghost stories. I'm a fan of what used to be called psychic detective stories. And one of the early proper ones, I would say, depending on your... I know people like uh, people like to go back to older stuff like uh, Sheridan Le Fanu and stuff. But I, I think when it comes to like an actual character who is active in the stories and goes and does the investigating himself or herself, there were female ones too. Um, Hesketh, Hesketh Pritchard is a writer who in the 1890s uh, puts uh, writes a series of books called Flaxman Low with with his mother. They're like a team. So, yeah, the the improbably named Hesketh Hesketh Pritchard and his mother Kate O'Brien Ryle Pritchard, and and they write under the names H Heron and E Heron, and they have a series of books starring a, a supernatural investigator, kind of a Sherlock Holmes detective of the supernatural. And his name is Flaxman Low, and these stories come out 1880. Eight and eighteen eighty nine, in in Pearson's magazine and a few other places, and they're hilarious. They're they're good, like, but they're they're funny and they're silly, 
and there's mummies and vampires and ghosts and all sorts of mad things and yeah they're loads of fun so i knew this i've known this for years i have collections of the books um, and and i've always enjoyed them but i didn't i didn't connect this with another sort of mad story which we mentioned recently on an episode again i think in the lost world we talked briefly about let me see if i can find the we, we talked briefly about um an expedition kind of around the turn of the century to patagonia because there was, there was this weird belief that there might be uh, like extinct giant ground slots that were still alive there in particular uh, the, this mylodon and this is interesting partly because it was sort of okayed by um ray lancaster who was in charge of the natural history museum and he's connected to arthur conan doyle he's connected directly to the lost world there was a lot of correspondence there he's even kind of mentioned in the book and as far as i know he was kind of a strange hide came out of south america and it was doing the rounds and various scientists in europe got to look at it and published on it and i think lancaster basically kind of said well you know it's not impossible so people got very excited about this and um none other than the daily express sent an expedition there and this is all chronicled in in bernard huvelman's he has a chapter on this in on the track of unknown animals so this this is a, an old story and a well-known story but i never really copped that the person in charge of this expedition was a fellow named pritchard and yes it was hesketh hesketh pritchard the guy who wrote the crazy ghost stories so he was commissioned to go to patagonia to investigate these rumors uh by the pearson c arthur pearson uh, when well this is from pattybros.org when well-preserved remains of this creature were discovered in 1895 in a cave near puerto consuelo ultima esperanza speculation focused on the possibility that the species might have survived somewhere in the fastnesses of the southern andes so he kind of he kind of he was interested he, he tolerated this as a possibility but quite early on in the trip pritchard de decided it wasn't really probably a real thing and uh, huvelman chides him uh, for this and and you know kind of makes out like oh he gave up too early if only he'd kept going he would have found the mylodon but i think it's pretty great that this guy had a connection between you know a real serious uh, zoology or cryptozoology expedition at the turn of the century and you know classic 1890s goofy ghost stories absolutely love that uh, finally i have a off rather off topic uh, correction to make and this is related to our final hulk hogan episode uh, i told the story on one of those episodes where i i said that big van vader the wrestler was called that because he early on in his career he was he drove a big van and the other wrestlers gave him this nickname now i Various people in my personal chats who are big wrestling heads um, called me out on this and said this this is not the, the standard explanation. Wikipedia says that after uh, his real name was Leon White, after Leon White joined New Japan Pro Wrestling in the 80s, he was given the, the ring name Big Van Vader and began wearing a black wrestling mask. His new identity was based on a strong warrior of the same name from Japanese folklore. So it is correct that this is where this is what you will usually see written in most places. And um, my brother, who was the expert on that particular episode, has informed me that um, people who dig deep into this stuff, like he's a big fan of Lapsed Fan podcast, they have put a huge question mark on this. They say there's no evidence for this whatsoever. Um, it's just it sounds to me like it's just one of these origin stories that wrestlers tell about themselves. I mean, they are showmen they uh you know they're encouraged to make up stories about themselves and as as demonstrated aptly in the life of hulk hogan some of them get to a point where they really can't tell the difference between 
um, what's fact and what's fiction in their own life anymore. So that is the standard story, uh, though it's not, it doesn't appear to be substantiated by anything, anyone serious. Now, where did I get the story about the big van? Honestly, can't remember. It's been in my head for years. I probably read it. I can't go back and check this right now because I don't have the books, but I probably read it, if I had to guess, in one of Mick Foley's books or in Chris Jericho's book. I can't think of anywhere else I would have come across something like this. And I guess it's possible that they were just telling a silly joke and it went over my head. All right then, let's let's get looking at exploration faucet then. So I'm not going to repeat all the usual beats of his life. I'm going to presume that we know that from the previous episode. Um, I am mostly interested in how this book treats him differently or what it chooses to focus on, as I said before. Also, I'm going to try not to read out massive chunks at least too often. Uh, I'll try and put them into my own words, unless there's a really good evocative quote that I'd like to use. Now, my copy of this book, well, I have two. I have a 90s reprint that I got off the internet. Uh, but also, I, I think maybe like two days after I dropped my first Percy Fawcett episode a while ago, I was on an ecology job near the town of Tullamore in County Offaly. And if you are listening from abroad, uh, you, you probably are aware of the whiskey, Tullamore Dew. Yes, it's the same town. And Tullamore, Tullamore had, uh, walking down the main street, I saw this very interesting, pokey old secondhand bookshop and it, it, it was musty and mysterious and full of strange volumes and the kind of place that uh, book lovers dream of, really. Um, and in particular, they had an amazing section of old-fashioned books dedicated to the history of the British Empire, which obviously is one of my things. And we're talking like old cloth-covered you know, tomes from the 1920s and 30s about, you know, like secret Asians having adventures in the northwest frontier with Afghanistan, that sort of thing. And amongst all these was nothing other than an original 1950s copy of Exploration Fawcett with another drawing, I presume done by Brian Fawcett, of the giant anaconda encounter, a slightly different one than the one that you usually see. And it was just... I guess it was just meant to be the universe was uh, trying to tell me something. So this book starts off with prologue written by Brian Fawcett, the son. And remember, he's the son who was left behind, the younger son, when um, Fawcett took his other son, Jack, and their, their friend, Rally Rimmel, into the forest in 1925 when they finally dis disappeared. And Brian, the last time I, I think Brian saw any of them was um, when he was sent away at about 17 to work for a railway company in, in South America, in Peru, I think. And he was only, so he was only a young fellow sent away. Um, and then shortly after that, his father and his brother disappeared forever. So, um, as I said earlier, uh, Brian then spent some years kind of consumed with this story and followed up on every possible lead and was involved with a lot of people who claimed that they knew what happened to his father or people who claimed to be descendants of his father, you know, coming out of these unexplored jungle regions. So he was basically mixed up in this story for the rest of his life and then in the 50s finally published this book. Of note to me is the particular angle that he puts on this in the prologue where he admits that his father was known to be a bit of a dreamer and he admits that his father was known to be a bit of a mystic. But he kind of brushes these aside saying, you know, anyone who uh, seeks knowledge beyond the material could be called a mystic and anybody who has big ideas about what might be out there in the world um, could be called a dreamer and therefore any true scientist or archaeologist or historian or explorer 
even, you know, should be thinking this way. So again, he, he's brushing over a lot of his father's spiritualism here. He's not, he doesn't really want too much of that to make it into the book. There are ways in which he can't avoid it and there are ways in which he does avoid it. And um, well, well, we'll see what we find and we'll compare it to some other information that I have in our third episode eventually but basically uh, brian's ends up the prologue by saying uh, both dreamer and mystic dissolved into the essence of the explorer archaeologist and ethnologist when he was on the trail and it is essentially of the expeditions that his manuscript deals and that's pretty much true this book is pretty straight laced there's not too much mysticism in it and um, i as usual as i did last time i will be picking out the stranger stuff because that's my interest but once again it's not really typical of the book this book as a whole is i would say 80 percent just Fawcett making his way through parts of uh, bolivia and then brazil and a few other parts as well um, and him just talking about the people he meets and it's it's almost all about the the rubber trade so at the time he's in south america and um, the whole you know huge section of the continent is in the grip of this rubber trade all around the amazon at least and that is people coming from you know p- people who live there and brazilians and, and people living within the country but also people coming from other parts of the world to get in on this rubber boom and there's an awful lot of cruelty there's a lot of horrible stories there's a lot of um, there's a lot of sadness, I suppose, in this. And Fawcett, as we said before in the in the first episode, Fawcett does have a lot of sympathy towards the indigenous people he meets. He does carry some uh, ideas of his time about race, and he does they do lead into sort of unusual thinking about sort of weird racial ideas that were kind of fairly they were on the way out, but they were still well known at this time. Obviously, all of that kind of getting tossed out after the Second World War, but he he's more his his commentary on the native people that he meets is more interesting than some uh, folks who were traveling and writing at this time that i've come across anyway so we'll we'll be covering all that in this book the first real chapter here as written by Fawcett, is a closer look at the the map that he finds editing key in here i keep saying map it's not a map it's a document a written document uh, that first um convinces him that the lost city of Zed is a real thing and he talks about the story that he reads in the map and this weirdly enough in the in the film version of lost city of Zed, he states that he found his wife found it in trinity college dublin which obviously caught my ear and um, i don't know why the filmmaker chose to do it that way i suppose it was an, an attempt to bring Fawcett's wife nina closer into the story though in that case i wish it, they'd actually shown her doing it rather than just just stating this but in reality this is a document that he finds written in portuguese in at rio in rio de janeiro and it's it's kind of being kept in the national library and he he writes that it is the story begins what he reads on this on this map which is a record of an expedition by a group of kind of let's say conquistador era banderas or flags and they're sponsored and accompanied by government troops and have a bunch of missionaries with them as well. And they go out into the into the bush to um, discover things, to meet new groups of people, uh, to spread usually Christian religion and look for... In this case, they're looking for a rumoured lost mine associated with uh, an older conquistador expedition that is supposed to be in this area. Now, he says, the story begins in 1743 when a native of Minas Gerais, whose name has not been preserved, decided to make a search for the lost mines of Morabeca. Now, 
so he, he admits we don't know who the name what the name is of this Portuguese gentleman who made the trip the person who was in charge of this group he gives him a name anyway he, he says okay we don't know what his name was I'm going to call him Francisco Rapasso because I must identify him by some name I thought that's funny I'll just make up a name so they these guys are in the jungle for 10 years they're lost they're wandering they're trying to decide whether this you know lost mine is really a myth or whether it's real and eventually they come they come across a, a giant mountain range and they scale up this mountain range and when they get to the top and look over the other side they see what appears to be a city now at this time in reality the spaniards and the portuguese of course were coming across you know the great cities of the south american civilizations and you know they presume at first that this is inhabited by some group of indigenous people and they they approach it extremely cautiously but as they get closer they find out that it is empty and abandoned and not just that but they get inside of it and they discover all this impressive architecture and they they note particular kinds of writing that look familiar to them because they would have been aware of um, well, the history of Greek and Roman civilization and they make that. This document is real, by the way. Uh, David Grant talks about going to see it and he, he mentions um, a few things about it. He says that, yes, there are... There's a record of what the symbols were that the that the people saw and how they reminded him also of uh, Greek or Roman characters. I'm not sure. There's a few. There's some elements here that I wonder whether Fawcett is is kind of building upon based on his own ideas because I don't have the document myself. If anybody out there listening is more aware of this than I am, I, I'm I'm presuming that Fawcett is exaggerating in a few places at least. But he when he's interestingly when he's talking about the ruins that they're going through. There's a few, uh, there's a few kind of pr- proto Lovecraftian vibes going on here. He says things like uh, a feeling of vast age brooded over everything, and he uses the word cyclopean in a few places to describe the architecture. Now, obviously, I know the word cyclopean predates Lovecraft. He didn't invent it. He's just associated with it. But it's still fairly startling to see it here in this context when this is, you know, pre-Lovecraftian, uh, when Fawcett is writing this in the in the in the twenties. Um, and he is using this language to describe what he thinks is real, what he believes is real, uh, but it's all very reminiscent of the themes of, of Lovecraft that would become part of his work in about 10 years. And we're talking about lost cities of incalculable age. We're talking about gulfs of time that are immeasurable. We're talking about you know ancient civilizations that are mi- or mind-shattering just in their in, in the breath of their architecture and he, and then here we have the word cyclopean as well just to just to really ring that one home so it's an interesting one um Fawcett writes when he's describing um these explorers in the lost city he writes the figure of a youth was carved over what seemed to be the principal doorway it portrayed a beardless figure naked from the waist up with shield in hand and a band across one shoulder the head was crowned with what looked to them like a wreath of laurel judging by Grecian statuary they had seen in Portugal. Below were inscribed characters remarkably like those of ancient Greece. Raposo copied them on a tablet and reproduced them in his narrative. So, I mean, some of this is coming from the from the original paper, no question, but I just wonder about Fawcett's interpretation that, you know, the, they find these, these this place where, like, ancient Greek people had come. That... I'm not saying that ideas like this weren't around in the 1700s, but they were a lot more common by the time Fawcett is writing this because he would have been aware of the writing of Ignatius Donnelly and his kind of late 19th century books about that. Atlantis and the Antediluvian world, I think from the 1880s. The, this would have been part and parcel of 
kind of Fawcett's proto-New Age thinking that he would have been in- interested in, and his, his spiritualism and his kind of pseudo-ties to theosophy as well. All of which were worlds that Fawcett was dabbling in by the time he writes this in, in the early 20s. So I think I think it's worth noting that this element is kind of absent from uh, Gran's interpretation in Lost City of Zed. Uh, Gran gives an interesting case of of he gives a good description of this um, of this story and the, this uh, tale about the conquistadors finding the lost city, but he kind of leaves out the sort of Atlantis-sounding elements, which which to me, if I'm a spiritualist like Fawcett in the early twenties, and I'm describing a lost city of you know Greek ancient Greek-looking statues and characters you know what really that that's atlantis like let's not beat around the bush here that is some or something like that atlantis by another name is i think what he has in mind and things got a bit stranger in the second chapter which is called the stone idol now this this story is very famous um and i've been in touch with some friends of the show who are more academic than i are more ensconced in the academic world and i'm trying to find out whether anyone has come across corroboration of this from the other side this is of course um about Fawcett's claim that the writer h writer haggard gave him a mysterious or mystical stone idol so Fawcett writes i have in my possession an image about 10 inches high carved from a piece of black basalt it represents a figure with a plaque on its chest inscribed with a number of characters and about its ankles a band similarly inscribed it was given to me by Sir H. Ryder Haggard, who obtained it from Brazil, and I firmly believe that it came from one of the lost cities. There is a peculiar property in this stone image to be felt by all who hold it in their hands. It is as though an electric current were flowing up one's arm, and so strong is it that some people have been forced to lay it down. Experts at the British Museum were unable to tell me anything about the idol's origin. If not a fake, I was told, it's quite beyond our experience. So, yeah, I, I don't know that there's any record from Haggard's side of things confirming that he met Fawcett and gave him this item. There is a reproduction of a drawing of it in the book. Uh, I, am, I, I am not an archaeologist, but <laughs> I have read from folks who are that this is kind of like a, a nonsense figure. It doesn't clearly represent any known culture and it's a bit of a mishmash of kind of popular ancient cultures that Europeans are fond of and know about. I can't really say much more beyond that. Fawcett claimed he had it. He believed personally that it came from the jungles of South America. He came came to believe that it had some connection with a mystical lost city and um, and that it had some kind of supernatural powers itself. As we'll see, he then comes to associate this uh, idol strongly with either Atlantis or Atlantis by another name. Uh, see what you think. Uh, he also was carrying this with him when he went on his final expedition in, in 1925. So I, I think he, for whatever reason, he believed that it had some kind of connection with his ultimate destination and his ultimate destiny. He also wrote, I could think of only one way of learning the secret of the stone image, and that was by means of psychometry, a method that may evoke scorn for many people, but it is widely accepted by others who have managed to keep their minds free from prejudice. Admittedly, the science of psychometry is yet in its infancy in our Western countries, though highly developed in the Orient. And great care must be taken to sift out from the results the crumbs of telepathic communication liable to mix with it. I love that. It's like, you can hold this 
stone idol and get messages from it but oh you have to be careful to make sure that you know it's it's proper psychometry and not accidental telepathy and you're not accidentally just like channeling somebody else's mind around you i'm i'm a fan of don't use something unexplained to explain something else unexplained but that that's just me he then goes on to say that, like, look, hey, guys, psychometry is, you know, not that crazy because he uses the analogy of a radio receiver, which would have been, you know, reasonably new at the time. And that's I like that because it I mean, this is an era where lots of new sciences are, are appearing and lots of new technology is appearing, which, you know, with, with photography and then radio, the and then things like X-ray and, and ra radio, radioact radioactivity, all these ideas that there are forces all around us that we can't see, but we can detect them if we have the right equipment. So they are there. You know, I think it must have been a time when the, these kind of psychic phenomena felt like more more potential um, to two different kinds of thinking and then basically, so he takes it to this psychic person or this psych psychometry person who is unnamed. I do wonder, I wonder whether it was anybody I'd recognize in the 20s. I think it's it's quite possible it might have been somebody fairly well known. But any, again, if anyone out there is aware, uh, please do let me know. And she tells him, uh, she's, holding the, she's holding the idol and she is channeling whatever she picks up from it. And she says, I see a large irregularly shaped continent stretching from the north coast of Africa across to South America. Numerous mountains are spread over its surface, and here and there a volcano looks as though it is about to erupt. Uh, and then we get some stuff about how there's different kinds of people living on this continent, which is, you know, in the in the Atlantic. Um, just saying that. And, and how these different groups of people are, you know, they're more like black people over in the east end of it, and then they're more like white people on the west end. And if you can guess which group of people she considers to be a, of a better caste and more developed and more intelligent, you can give yourself a cookie. So, yeah, I mean, this, this sort of thinking is part of Fawcett's mental furniture for sure. And I still think he's, he's less troubling than a lot of people writing at this time. We get this whole spiel about like what this society might be like and how there's this cast of priests and how they oh, very interestingly and again this this goes back to the the document from the 1700s the 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 ancient parchment which tells him well, it's not ancient but the old parchment which tells him that you know the the conquistador guys who were in the lost city they found you know temples and what looked like some kind of college for priests with all of these weird snake statues and uh, you know elements of ritual and religion so this woman is is kind of riffing on that i think when she tells him that there's this cast of priests on this ancient atlantis place and they are they are passing on the stone idol to one another and you get this bit where he says I see the high priest take it and hand it to another priest with instructions to retain it carefully and in due course deliver it to an appointed one who in turn must pass it on until at length it comes into the possession of a reincarnation of the personage it portrays where numerous forgotten things will, through its influence, be elucidated. And so, I mean, it seems here like Fawcett is basically saying, you know, this thing has been passed on from Atlantis through to the lost cities of the Amazon, which I presume we're going to learn, you know, were founded by refugees from Atlantis, which is kind of the usual take that this sort of thinking has. And then the item has been passed through to Fawcett, being that he is somehow a reincarnation of, you know, the lineage of these ancient priests, and that therefore he is due 
for some dramatic destiny connected to Atlantis or the Lost City. So if this all sounds like really out there, it's only the first kind of chapter and a bit that's like this. And then I, I suspect Brian Fawcett, you know, kind of toned it, toned it down for the rest of the book. He says he doesn't have a date for this. Basically, the island then gets destroyed in the usual Ignatius Donnelly Atlantis style story. And he doesn't have a date for this, but it was before the rise of Egypt and has been forgotten, except perhaps in myth. And he says that he looks on this stone idol as a possible key to the secret of the lost city of my quest. And when the search is continued, it will accompany me. And it did. The connection of Atlantis with parts of what is now Brazil is not to be dismissed contemptuously. And so we're getting into some some stuff that's fairly common at this time among fringe thinkers, especially regarding race, which is that, you know, all of the groups of people that they like which is you know anglo-saxon people they must have come from the north and they must have come from you know some super hyper diffusionist atlantis type society and then all the other people groups of people that we don't respect as much well they they come from somewhere else uh Fawcett writes and this i'm just reading this out because it connects to my life it was with aching hearts that we left ceylon in 1904 and came back to be stationed at spike island county cork ireland but we were close now to the gateway of a new life. In 1906, the offer of boundary delimitation work in Bolivia was made to me. And that's kind of that's kind of it for the spooky stuff for a long time. He, The rest of the book is just him on his adventures in South America. And it's like, if you've read any kind of straight, straightforward travelogues from this time, from the 19th century or the early 20th century, that's kind of what this is. He doesn't spend a lot of time it's unlike Grant's book in a lot of ways and it's unlike the movie and it's unlike how we would tell this story now because he doesn't spend a lot of time explaining what he's doing or where he's going or how long it takes so that and, and there's not a whole lot of like the, the version of Fawcett that I picked up when I was younger from these books and from other sources was, you know, the, the hardships of being in the jungle, being alone, being on a small team of people in very remote places and, you know, being on your own and away from civilization for long periods of time. Whereas the reality is a bit different. So the, the, the world he's in is extremely, uh, it's, it's big and all the places he goes to are far apart and you know, they're, these are these are wild, dangerous places, 100%. The rubber boom is in full effect here. And, you know, the kind of people he meets are desperados and kind of soldiers of fortune and, you know, down and outs and people who've been kicked out of other countries or people who are on the run from the law or, you know, quite you know, desperate indigenous people who are being pushed around by, you know, foreign forces and, uh, you know, kind of disaster capitalists trying to make money out of, uh, you know these and, and he's going to all these squalid towns where everybody is drunk all the time and fighting all the time and the government doesn't have any power there because these places are too far away so he he's going to like crazy wild places for sure and actually it's astonishing how much this book is reminiscent of you know north american stories about the wild west this is in effect it feels like a wild west of south america and it's 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 one i've not seen written about anywhere else myself really in quite this way. Basically, what I'm trying to wrap, <laughs> trying to get to here is, I was surprised how busy the world that Fawcett is traveling in appears to be. He barely spends more than one or two paragraphs in a row talking about the challenges of being in the jungle by himself or with his small team, um, and it's barely two paragraphs go by before they stop off at some guy's villa who 
you know, is a lunatic and a, des- a desperado and a, an alcoholic, uh, you know, and has a harem of 10 wives that he stole from some indigenous village. Like, don't get me wrong, these are messed up people, but it's busy. He never spends more than a little while before he comes to the next frontier town or, you know, collection of huts in the, in the, in the jungle where he has, and everywhere he goes, he meets people from England, he meets people from Germany, from Austria, from Texas, and they're all, they're all lunatics, you know, come to this wild place to seek their fortune. But he, it's busy. That's, that's, that's what I was surprised by. So, yeah, it's, it's, I would say 80% of the book is a social history of the rubber boom of South America in those years. And as such, is tremendously interesting in and of its own right. But the bits that I've come for which is, you know, Fawcett's spiritualism, his ideas about, you know, the, the, the meme of the jungle explorer and the meme of the lost city and, and where those ideas come from, which is what I'm interested in, are, are occasional. So Fawcett gets started on his adventures in Latin America. He talks about leaving uh, or getting on a, a ship for New York and leaving New York and going down to Panama and basically tells kind of rip-roaring <laughs> guy having adventures in the early days kind of stories about how wild Panama is and again you've got this kind of Wild West vibe where he's talking about all the kind of desperados who he's meeting in these like rundown hotels and again stuff stuff that you, you'll find in travelogues of this era where they kind of try and emphasize how wild and woolly everything is and, and again it, it, it's fun stuff but it's not really what this podcast is about he does mention that as a kid, he was fascinated by the stories of the conquistadors in Latin America. Uh, but interestingly, he says that when he would read these books as a kid, he, he says his sympathies were not with the Spaniards, who were just, you know, out to steal gold, but they were for the Incas, for the loss of their ancient civilization, which might have told the world so much. So I, again, as always with Fawcett, there's this mix of, you know, hey, a little bit uh, progressive for his time, but also kind of... He's interested in the indigenous people kind of for his own reasons, which is that, you know, maybe they have these secret lost cities and maybe ultimately he comes to believe that they'll be connected to his own spiritual beliefs in some way. And we have a little moment of weirdness here as he's traveling in Bolivia and he passes by the ruins of an archaeological site called Tijuanaco. And do apologize for uh, pronunciations here as uh, archaeology from this region is not my thing, but Fawcett says... Tijuanaco was built as a Saxuaman, and much of Cusco was built by a race who handled cyclopean boulders and carved them to fit so perfectly that it is impossible to insert a knife blade between the mortarless joins. Looking at these remains, it is not difficult to believe the tradition that they were erected by giants. Indeed, skeletons of giants are said to have been discovered in rock tombs in the vicinity of Cusco. So there are a lot of tropes here that still exist today in alt history. You know, the idea that ancient cities, um, you know, are, are put together with some sort of technique that should have been impossible. And there's this thing about the, the rocks fitting together so well that it must, you know, you can't fit a knife blade in between them. This is something that pops up still in, like, ancient alien stuff and um, Graham Hancock type alt history as well. The idea that maybe um, these things were built by some race that was not human. Uh, there, Of course, the idea of, you know, ancient giants in, in prehistory has a long pedigree. And there's all that goofy stuff about the Smithsonian covering them up and all that, um, which which has its own kind of substrata of of weird thinking. And um, then he goes on to say that he knew an, a German archaeologist 
who had worked at Tuanaco and said to Fawcett, took Fawcett aside and said, hey, um, I've got all of these uh, cases full of pottery and stone and weapons and relics. And, you know, they show that there's something unusual going on at this site that we haven't recognized. Uh, will you take them to the British Museum because you are so well connected? And um, he's told by the museum that they don't want this stuff. They're of no particular interest to us. And it's it's he doesn't emphasize this too much, but he is hinting that, you know, this is the kind of standard conspiracy thinking that shows up in alt history constantly because I suppose if you believe something that is is difficult to prove or is not accepted by the usual authorities, you are kind of forced then to go into this idea of that there's a cover up and they're all out to get you, blah, blah, blah. And, and Fawcett did become more like that later in his career, unfortunately. He then he talks more a little bit about Panama and... Uh, he talks about he, there are these little notes made by Brian Fawcett. So when 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 Percy Fawcett starts using the word gringo, Brian Fawcett says the word gringo belongs to the slang of Latin America and denotes broadly any fo foreigner of the fair complexioned race. The origin of the word is not certain, but it is believed that in the old days, visiting sailor men sang "Green grows the grass," and that this this became their nickname, "Green grow Green grows the grass." That is a, a bit of a myth. Um, there are lots of myths uh, attached to the word gringo. When I, I worked in, in Panama years ago with the Smithsonian Tropical Group and I heard somebody told me that it was because in the canal zone back in the day, the American workers would have all the Panamanians lined up on the dock to do work on the ships and stuff. And depending on the, their cards that they had, allowing them to work and what color the card was, they would say green go, green go, as they let people onto the ship. So that, that was another version of the story, but I'm sure there were lots of different legends about where that term comes from. So upon kind of plunging into the, the mountains and then the jungle of this part of South America, Fawcett kind of gets into the, the main body of the book, which is a kind of repetitive and, and kind of... Geographically confusing to me, anyway. Kind of repetitive pattern of him traveling from place to place, from these tiny little outposts, usually, and meeting with these uh, often Europeans and sometimes Brazilian people, um, living in pretty weird situations where they're often in these little kind of wild, rugged outposts, uh, often connected to the robber trade. Often he sees a lot of cruelty. He sees a lot of atrocities committed. And by and large, he is unsympathetic towards the those running the robber trade and quite sympathetic to the indigenous peoples, mostly. He does say at a place called Trinidad, um, we were provided with English magazines and a copy of Martin Chuzzlewith, which put me in mind of uh, that short story, The Man Who Liked Dickens, which I talked about um, in the previous episode. And for the first time, while meeting these people out in the wilderness... Fawcett starts to hear stories about the legendary white Indians. He's told, You meet whites who have gone Indian, and sometimes you see Indians who are white. I've seen them myself, people with red hair and blue eyes, like a gringo. Ask any of the men in the Brazilian barracas up this way, and they'll tell you the same. This was the first time I had heard of the white Indians. I also have seen them, and later on shall have more to say on the subject. And I suppose it's worth remembering that for Fawcett, as it was for many of these explorers, specifically in the 20s, uh, the idea that there might be, you know, groups of indigenous tribes in these places that are, you know, ethnically white 
was a very loaded concept. It came with a lot of built-in ideas about, you know, well, we have the right to be here doing our colonization, for example, for some people. Um, for other people, it was proof that uh, ethnically white people were superior because, you know, they were descended from one of these great civilizations that people like Fawcett believed in. I think for him personally, it's a little more complicated than that, but it is one of these ideas that has unfortunate uh, colonial assumptions bubbling under the surface of it. At another outpost, Fawcett is told by a Frenchman about something that happened to his own brother. The next thing he knew, he and his men were being attacked by big, well-built, handsome savages, pure white, with red hair and blue eyes. They fought like devils too, and when my brother shot one of them dead, the others rallied to recover the body and got away with it. People say these white Indians don't exist, and when it's proved they do, that they are half-breed mixtures of Spanish and Indian. That's what people say who never saw them, but those who have seen them think differently. And now, finally, we get to the giant anaconda uh, sighting. Now, this, this is famous, and this has made its way beyond just the story of Fawcett and people who are interested in Fawcett. This is a mainstay of cryptozoological books, and I started off this episode a long time ago uh, with a mention of a Rupert Matthews book, which had a wonderful illustration of this moment. And I'm almost certain that the very first time I ever came across the story of Fawcett was in another Rupert Matthews book, The Spine-Chilling Book of Monsters, which has the Fawcett story in it as well. So this is it's really fun to go back to the original um, the original text for this, as this story is primordial for me. I, you know, when I was a little kid, I had that book, and I've always remembered that story, and I've always remembered Fawcett's name because of this. So we're, we're going to go, we're going to go right back to the source here. Fawcett writes, and, and I no apologies for a slightly longer quotation here, because this is such a an important scene to me. Fawcett writes, "We were drifting easily along on the sluggish current." not far below the confluence of the Rio Negro, when, almost under the bow of the Igarite, there appeared a triangular head and several feet of undulating body. It was a giant anaconda. I sprang from my rifle as the creature began to make its way up the bank, and hardly waiting to aim, smashed a 4-4 soft-nosed bullet into its spine, ten feet below the wicked head. At once there was a flurry of foam, and several heavy thumps against the boat's keel, shaking us as though we had run on a snag. With great difficulty, I persuaded the Indian crew to turn in shorewards. We stepped ashore and approached the reptile with caution. It was out of action, but shivers ran up and down the body like puffs of wind on a mountain tarn. As far as it was possible to measure, a length of 45 feet lay out of the water and 17 feet lay in it, making a total length of 62 feet. Its body was not thick for such a colossal length, not more than 12 inches in diameter, but it had probably been long without food. I tried to cut a piece of the skin, but the beast was by no means dead, and the sudden upheavals rather scared us. A penetrating, fetid odour emanated from the snake, probably its breath, which is believed to have a stupefying effect, first attracting and later paralysing its prey. Such large specimens as this may not be common, but the trails in the swamps reach a width of six feet, and support the statements of Indians and rubber pickers that the anaconda sometimes reaches an incredible size, altogether dwarfing that shot by me. The Brazilian Boundary Commission told me of one they killed in the Rio Paraguay, exceeding 80 feet in length. Uh, then comes a, a section where Fawcett again is commenting on the, the horrors of the rubber trade and how these um, indigenous peoples are kind of are captured and held pretty much as slaves and beaten mercilessly when they can't uh, collect enough rubber 
and um, he's talking about the use of of the lash. You know, he's talking about guys getting four hundred lashes and one thousand lashes for you know perceived minor slights in these places that are essentially prison camps in the jungle. And he says uh, he has an interesting moment where he says that well, not that long ago in the British Isles, we British used the lash as well, and in fact, it's still in some elements of the penal code. And then he goes on to say that we're even worse than this in some ways, by we, um, I mean the British, um, for, he says, taming the West African colonies and that we ourselves are in no position to throw stones. And yeah, just an interesting kind of moment of self-awareness. Again, pointing out that that Fawcett is far from your average uh, colonial era guy. His his, his understanding of things and his his beliefs are, are more complex are definitely more complex than that. He also says that um, in the places he travels and sees the, the horrors of the rubber trade, he said it's bad as it was. Nothing occurred there comparable with the atrocities in the Belgian Congo. And then he finally goes on to say that th- these bad things were being done by desperate people out in the, in the wilds who were very far away from any government control. Now, I think part of what he's doing here is he's, he's trying to ex- exonerate the Brazilian government, perhaps, who he has good connections with and good contacts with. And as we'll see in the book, he has a lot of love for Brazil and for the Southern American nations. He has a lot of hope for them. He sees, eventually we'll, we'll see, he sees uh, England and maybe even America as, you know, civil, civilizations that have already peaked. And he's he thinks they're about to go on the downward slide, um, which I think certainly was, was the case for, for Britain in, in terms of its global influence at about that time and, and the next 20 years. Um, and he puts a lot of his hopes and faith into the Latin American nations. He talks about them in a somewhat paternalistic way, as as like children who are about to come into their, you know, their adulthood, and they need to stand up and take their place amongst the great nations. But yeah, I I think some of this is him exonerating the Brazilian government by saying, well, wait, 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 it wasn't their fault that these terrible things were happening out in the wilds. And he does go into quite a lot of detail about how difficult it was for any government to control these things. You would send some some representative up the river out into the jungle and then um, you were u- utterly in the hands of, of gangs, criminal gangs and and rubber traders. And, you know, if you were to tell the truth about what you saw, you pretty much wouldn't make it out of there alive. And uh, I, th- I think that probably was true for uh, to a great extent. Interestingly, he doesn't say much about, I don't think he mentions it all. He mentions the Putumayo, which, and, and the horrors of the Putumayo rubber trade. And that, of course, this time would have been uh, intimately associated with the Irish diplomat Roger Casement, who's, who's a figure of great interest to me and, of course, had connections to Arthur Conan Doyle and, and the character of John Roxton in The Lost World. In fact, most places you'll read that Roxton was some kind, in, in the book, was some kind of uh, composite figure between Fawcett himself and and even Roger Casement, but yeah, he doesn't mention him outright. Although they would have, I can only imagine they would have been aware of each other. Right. So we've mentioned the giant snake, and there are more cryptozoological things coming up here. Uh, so I'm going to read another little bit here. Fawcett writes: In the Paraguay River, there is a freshwater shark, huge but toothless, said to attack men and swallow them if it gets a chance. They talk here of another river monster, fish or beaver, which can, in a single night, tear out a huge section of riverbank. The Indians report the tracks of some gigantic animal in the swamps bordering the river, but allege that it has never been seen. The shark exists beyond doubt. As for the other monsters, 
Well, there are queer things yet to be disclosed in this continent of mystery, and if strange, unclassified insects, reptiles, and small mammals can still exist, mightn't there be a few giant monsters, remnants of an extinct species, still living out their lives in the security of the vast, unexplored swamp areas? In the Madidi in Bolivia, enormous tracks have been found, and Indians there talk of a huge creature decried at times half-submerged in the swamp. Okay, so Fawcett here is hinting at the possibility of surviving extant non-avian dinosaurs, to some people at least. To Bernard Huvelmans, though, uh, he wondered whether uh, some of Fawcett's kind of vaguely described giant mystery creatures might be reports of a surviving glyptodon which uh, I enjoy very much. He's just, it's, it seems a little bit distant. It's like it's not something he's seen himself. It's just some stuff he's heard. It's just it's not a sighting. It's footprints. And it, it's a little bit vague. However, uh, on websites around the internet, you will see it read that Fawcett made claims about uh, dinosaurs in South America that are more concrete than this. And I was trying to track this down. I was going through various websites and my collection of books and eventually, by accident, when I was looking at something else, I came across in Carl Schuker's book In Search of Prehistoric Survivors from 1995 um, a little bit about Percy Fawcett. Now, there's a there's a problem here, which we'll get to. The, this book has a an updated version from more, a few years later called Still in Search of Prehistoric Survivors. I don't have that. Um, so I'm wondering if this error that I'm going to talk about is corrected in that book. But let me, let me read from Carl Schuker's In Search of Prehistoric Survivors. He says, According to media reports from early 1995, a party of geology students investigating quartz deposits in the Sonorca mountain range of eastern Brazil had lately spied two strange dinosaur-like creatures bathing in the shallows of the Paraguaca River as it passes through the plain of Arobo. This recent report acquires additional importance in the light of a very notable account that I uncovered in June 1995, published in London's Daily Mail on the 17th of December, and then there's a typo on the date. I don't know when this happened. It says 191, and somewhere there's a digit miss missing. Worth noting, also Daily Mail, intimately connected with the hist history of cryptozoology, publishing the Loch Ness Monster Surgeon's photo in 1934, and sponsoring Yeti expeditions in the Himalayas in the 1950s as well. So, this is Colonel Percy Fawcett's letter to the London's Daily Mail. The Congo swamps are not the only region suspected of harbouring relics of the Miocene Age. As I hinted in lectures in London some years ago, a similar beast is believed to exist in South American swamps. A friend of mine, a trader in the rivers, and for whose honesty I can vouch, saw in somewhere about latitude 12 degrees south and longitude 65 degrees west, the Bolivia-Brazil borderland, the head and neck of a huge reptile of the character of the Brontosaurus. It was a question of who was scared most, for it precipitately withdrew with a plunging which suggested an enormous bulk. The savages appear to be familiar with the existence and tracks of the beast, although I have never come across any of the latter myself. These swamps over immense areas are virtually impenetrable. The linguin of Borneo, again reported a few months ago, is another such reptile, as to whose existence there is locally no doubt entertained. Listener, I have no idea what the linguin of Borneo is. I can't find any other references to it online or otherwise besides faucets, but it does show that he was taking an interest in mystery animals around the world. And then Carl Schuker says, 
not previously featured in a cryptozoological work, this account, in view of its author, is a particularly welcome addition to South America's sparse file on putative living dinosaurs. So according to Schuker, this was an account that he came across himself um, shortly before the publication of this book in 1995. And with a bit more digging, I managed to find what I think is probably a correct date for this letter that Percy Fawcett sends to the Daily Mail. It's probably 17th of December 1919. That makes a lot of sense to me because if it had been earlier than 1919, then I mean, I'm wondering like what, how did Percy Fawcett know about specifically this story of dinosaurs in the Congo? If it was pre-1919, then his most likely source would have been the book of Beasts and Men by Carl Hagenbeck. That was probably the most famous iteration of the Congo or Af Central African dinosaur story. That Car That is the great uh, animal collector and showman, Carl Hagenbeck, who ran a zoo in Hamburg and wrote a book in 1909 called Beasts and Men, where he talks about hearing stories of dinosaur-like creatures in Central Africa, but he doesn't specify Congo. I think he specifies... Uh, what was then called Rhodesia and he starts talking about how he has these reports from some of his animal collectors a guy called Hans Schomburg in particular um, and he was basically he was he was a promoter and a showman he was promoting his zoo which had just opened up a sort of you know dinosaur exhibit where he had you know model dinosaurs so he had good reason to be spreading stories like this however the fact that Fawcett is writing this letter in December 1919 makes it very likely that he was also influenced by the previously mentioned Lepage hoax the, the story that started out as being a report of something seen that was probably supposed to be um, a, a ceratopsian but then in the papers got called a brontosaurus incorrectly I might add so that find makes me much happier because the geography works out as the Lepage hoax was uh, reported to have been in the Belgian Congo. Anyway, speaking about Fawcett and uh, cryptozoological creatures, we might as well get a few other things mentioned here. So Fawcett also claimed to have seen an animal that he calls the Mitla, uh, which he describes as a black dog-like cat. doesn't have much to say about this. Um, the quote goes, in the forest were various beasts still unfamiliar to zoologists such as the Mithla, which I have seen twice. A black dog-like cat about the size of a foxhound. And uh, never never want to be outdone. The uh, rather dubious Ivan T. Sanderson decided to claim that he had seen one too, or at least that he had a, if I remember correctly, he claimed to have had the skin of this animal at one point as well. So yeah, that would put him to a pretty impressive list of unknown creatures that Ivan T. Sanderson supposedly saw but then wound up with no evidence for him. But that's just kind of how that that particular guy rolled. Um, cutting back to Fawcett, I'm going to skip ahead in the narrative a little bit because he talks about another meeting that is reported in a lot of places as a cryptozoological encounter. I'm not sure I would necessarily call it that. Kind of depends on your interpretation. There is a weird chapter called A Prehistoric Peep where Fawcett and Costin and, and the rest of their crew um, visit a village of a group of people called the Maxubi in which there is a boy with red hair and blue eyes who Fawcett claims is not an albino, therefore implying that he is one of the quote-unquote white Indians, though Fawcett doesn't really say much else beyond that. Um, as a matter of fact, some of these people were taken out of the jungles of Central and South America during the 1920s by explorers like Marsh and inevitably found to be albino, but uh, we, this book doesn't really spend too much time on that. Anyway, the Maxubis tell Fawcett and his team that there's another tribe somewhere to the north of them who are cannibals and dangerous and primitive. 
And these people are called the Maracoxi. Now, this word seems to originate with Fawcett. I haven't come across anybody else using it that isn't using Fawcett's book as its original source. Um, so Fawcett basically goes looking for these people and he finds them. And his description of them is such that other, other future cryptozoologists, including Ivan T. Sanderson, describe this as Fawcett meeting a group of ape men of some sort or you know bigfoot type creatures and that is the context in which you will see the word maracoxi used all over the internet inevitably being traced back to this book whether or not that's what Fawcett intended to describe is a little bit up in the air we kind of have the same problem here that we do with um you know the writing of uh, jw burns when he talks about sasquatch in british columbia in the 1920s in that the language he uses kind of implies that he's talking about just a, you know, a reclusive group of indigenous people. But then some of the language he uses is it makes it sound like they're not human. He describes them as giants or the fact that they're covered in hair. But it's a little bit inconclusive. I would say the same for this uh, description of an encounter. Fawcett says, Two savages appeared about 100 yards to the south, moving at a trot and talking rapidly. On catching sight of us, they stopped dead and hurriedly fixed arrows to their bows, while I shouted to them in the Maxubi tongue. We could not see them clearly, for the shadows dappled their bodies, but it seemed to me they were large, hairy men, with exceptionally long arms, and with foreheads sloping back from pronounced eye ridges, men of a very primitive sort, in fact, and stark naked. Uh, in another place, he describes them as being hairy as a dog, and he does use the word ape men at least once, and he says that... Um, he felt that human speech was beyond their powers of comprehension. So he's dis he's using this particular language to, to make them sound extremely primitive. But then bear in mind that, I mean, Fawcett's worldview is such that there were all different groups of people, races and subraces, and he is inc incredibly interested in the fact that some of these he, con he conceives to be more advanced than others. He has this sort of early 20th century pseudo-Darwinistic view of things. So, yeah, he, I mean, he comments this way about just about every group of indigenous people he meets. Um, and, and some of the language there does make it sound like these are, you know, some sort of animal, but I don't get the impression that that's really what he means. He doesn't spend, he's not, he doesn't seem too shocked by any of this. And he doesn't spend that much time, you know, if indeed he had discovered a race of like pre-humans, you, you'd think he would make that more clear and... Um, you think he would maybe make a bigger deal of it than he does in the book. Um, having said that, as we've seen already, he does <laughs> breeze over the potential discovery of, you know, amazing new animals uh, quite quickly sometimes. But I think some of that is down to his writing style. So regardless of what Fawcett meant by this, um, and I, I get the feeling, and, and this is just a vibe, I think he means that this is a group of people, but that he considers them to be very, quote-unquote, primitive because of... Uh, how their lack of speech because of their lack of clothing because of their cannibalism that sort of thing the drawing by um brian fawcett kind of hedges their bets as well i mean they effectively look like people they're just a little bit scruffy with hair on them and they're naked um you can see one face up close and it's you know not a super handsome specimen you could argue that he's trying to make the the person look a little bit neanderthal but it's it could kind of go either way so again, I just, I just, I don't think Fawcett's making a big enough deal out of this. If he does believe that he's discovered a race of, like, literal ape men, he does use that phrase once, but I think it's figurative rather than literal myself.
And I'm going to call it there, folks, because uh, I've been sitting with this episode for a rather long time and it was starting to feel like it was never going to come out. Not only is Exploration Fawcett a fairly decently sized book and a reasonably heavy going one with a lot of detail, but uh, this uh, exploration of his life has coincided with some big changes behind the scenes for me as well. So in order to provide you with something according to some sort of schedule, I'm going to cut it here and put this episode out now, which means you can look forward at some point in the future to another episode about the second half of Exploration Fawcett. And I'll be finishing this series about Percy with a, an episode about the book Brazil That Never Was by Andrew Leese, which is a marvellous, uh, another different marvellous account of Fawcett's life, but probably my favourite. So something to look forward to there. So that's where I'm going to leave it. As always, get in touch over at... Uh, on, on Twitter, where I am at Strange Ireland, or Instagram, where I am Irish underscore cryptid underscore dude. And as always, you can help out over at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wide Atlantic. So, as, as always, folks, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists, it's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.